0: we come to a passage that people are pretty familiar with, especially the end of it, for by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast, for we are God's worksmanship, and he goes on to finish from there, that we were created to do good works, so the passage seems very familiar, but I want to spend a little more time kind of on the lead up to those verses that we often quote, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are pretty close to the top of like Bible verses that <laughs> we memorize, um, as far as really trying to understand the good news and what God has done for us. Um, but I want to we're going to get to that today, and I don't want to, in any way, minimize the power of those verses. Um, but as always, Paul's building up to something. And it's coming out of his prayer that he just prayed at the end in chapter one. And that's a review of that from last week. We covered that last week. So that today we could seize the true high ground. In our interactions with people, we're always processing on two levels. There's kind of this level up here where we're trying to analyze what they're saying or whatever. Then there's kind of this gut level that's much faster, um, much more real than we want to admit, much harder to change, much closer to our heart, that is basically they're feeling secure or threatened. And when you are listening to somebody and not really listening, but you're automatically just totally analyzing their arguments and picking it apart, you're afraid. And until you deal with that, we're not going to get anywhere because we're not really listening. The way it's said is we're not listening to understand, we're listening to respond. We're just tearing it apart. Um, and not really engaging in and trying to hear the other person's heart. But that's what we think is seizing the high ground. <laughs> we're going to win this fight. So we try to like, grab the logical high ground, and obviously logic's important, and God's a coherent God. And we're going to talk about how coherent God is in just a little bit. But that kind of thinking, we don't realize how much we feel stressed, we feel threatened just because something is different. And so it kind of sets us off. And that failure to deal with the kind of torment that that fear spike causes in us um, really hinders the work of the church. We accept too many unbiblical limitations, we're not really seizing the high ground by destroying your argument. You're certainly not seizing the high ground if you're speaking evil of your authority figures. Because we're told directly not to do that. And that's rampant in the last 12 years of our country. And we're trying to win these arguments, and we're losing the true high ground. And it fractures the church we accept too many unbiblical limitations. How do we actually get to the true high ground? The church's potential is undiminished since its foundation was laid. We're not apostles, we're not eyewitnesses, but since all that happened (laughs) and that generation went on to be with the Lord, since that time, the church's potential is undiminished. We just lack the will as Paul says, the enlightened heart to make it happen. And then we just make excuses. There's really not any excuse for us here today in our world, in our circle, with the people we meet and see to be different. We can make excuses about, well, we're not going to change all these hundreds of years of church history. This is my tradition. This is how we've always done it. Whatever it is, none of those are excuses. They're not acceptable. We need to examine our potential, what God says the church ought to be doing in the world, and prayerfully pursue a breakthrough together. The breakthrough. Enlightened hearts can get to the heart of the matter. And that's worth the effort. We want to seize the true high ground and not just have this apostolic dream be a dream. To do that, three Ds, right? There's something we have to define, something we have to delight in, something we have to demonstrate. And they're all right there in Ephesians 2. But remember, chapter divisions are not in the original. So Paul's flowing right from this You heard, you believed, God sealed you. He guaranteed your inheritance. That's awesome. That excites me. I'm motivated. I'm praying for you. I am so thankful when I hear about your love. And he prays all this incredible stuff about how how now that they are saved, the eyes of their heart can be enlightened so that they can live, Ephesians 2. And it's all just flowing from Paul. And as he works through that, he does have to do a reminder. Because and we can never lose sight of this. We have to define our B C life accurately. The before Christ life accurately. The without Christ life accurately. You can never forget this. We know the verses. They were just read. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's going to bring up dead again later. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. There's a lot packed in there. In those three verses. You were dead. Again, he'll repeat that in a minute. And I'll talk more about dead a a little bit later. But then he rattles off trespasses, sins, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. What is that? Um, Disobedience. What does that mean? Passions of the flesh. Desires of the flesh and the mind. By nature. Children of wrath. Well, you can spend a long time just on that. But trespasses, in short, are just the things, and we have all had them. Um, you know, and there's a lot in the Old Testament when you look at the different sac- animal sacrifices for sins and even grain offerings and all these different things to talk about sins. But to boil it down, trespasses are not, oh, well, I missed, you know, I had a bad upbringing and that's why I acted out that way, but I didn't really think about it but it was still wrong. I know it's wrong, but, and that's all true. Those are sins, okay? We missed and it kills us spiritually and we've all done that, but in all of those sins we've done, we've also trespassed, which is, oh no, I saw that. I even on one level agreed that it was right and I blew right through it. I chose it. See, we're all damned, not just by what we would say are God's standards, but by our own. Now, when I say our own, they're never really our own. <laughs> they are God's standards somehow in some distorted way getting through to you. But all of us have done things in our life where I'm like, man, I'm ashamed of that. And I can't blame anybody else. I just chose it. That's a trespass. It's like you, were, you saw the line. You just didn't care. And there's always both of those things. We don't go to hell even because we're born sinners. God addresses that in Christ. We go to hell because God has a way, however distorted it might get through to us, to get us to see a line and then we choose to blow through it. But both are there. And because of both of them, this just misguided, broken impulse in us, the original sin, and because of our poor choices, we're just following the course of this world, everybody. And course of this world is really, probably more literally said, age of this world. And that's important to know, because a little bit later, Paul's going to talk about coming Ages. Like, it just seems like this has been so long and this is just the way things always are and always have been and always will be. And so you lose heart. And Paul's basically saying, it hasn't always been that way. It is that way right now, but that's an age and there's ages to come when it's not going to be that way again. So don't get so hung up in the ways of this world in the grand scheme of eternity, it's very temporary. It's one age on ages upon ages. And the whole idea of age is where the scripture writers get the idea of eternity, like ages without end. But even in this passage, he talks about age. Yeah, it's there. And it's been going on for thousands of years. But it's one age. And there's many ages. So you think it's just the way things are, and let's be realistic. And when you kind of give up on your ideals, because this is just the way things are, and let's be realistic, you're just following the prince of the power of the air. An interesting way to say it, but Paul's going to talk about heavenly places a little bit later, and he's already mentioned them in chapter 1. And so this power of the air, and I will repeat this a little bit in a couple minutes, to the ancients, there were three heavens. It was very simple, but very accurate. There was heaven as far as the sky that the birds fly in. That was the first heaven. The second heaven is where the stars are. And the third heaven is where God has his throne. So this is how they thought, don't take all of our modern science and read it back into scripture and try to make the Bible a scientific handbook. The was inspired, and our science needs to be informed by Scripture too. But we're not thinking the same way. If we're really going to have a good way of interpreting the text, we need to understand what it meant to them. And so with that kind of worldview, the people that Paul's writing to, especially the Ephesians with their background, they understood that there were these authorities, these princes, in the air, like, embedded in this heavenly situation, the heavens, that influenced humanity. Particularly one, (laughs) the prince from that realm. He's not a good prince. He is that spirit, that energy, that attitude, that works in all of us, that makes us children, sons and daughters, of disobedience. But here disobedience isn't really focusing on the wrong things you do. Yeah, those that's disobedient too. But this idea of disobedience is refusing to believe the truth. Refusing to accept God's diagnosis. That's the gospel. The, the gospel, law and then gospel. You know, law gives the diagnosis. Gospel affirms the diagnosis and says here's the cure. And there's something persistent in us that just refuses to accept God's diagnosis. We keep talking around it. And that very point is why the gospel is offensive. It's innately offensive to people. And it goes way beyond what we think of as people. It's offensive to people because we have a sin nature. We don't really want to own the diagnosis, but there's also this being, <laughs> this prince in this realm that is influencing and getting us to resist accepting God's diagnosis. I'm a sinner. It's, my, it's on me. I can't blame anyone else. And I will never be able to just be elite on my own. I will never be the source of the light. I will never be all that. I can't make myself be all that. I just need to accept the diagnosis and take the medicine. See, and the medicine doesn't taste good at all (laughs) to that part of our being that wants to establish our own righteousness, that wants to show that we're smart, that wants to show that we're elite, that wants to show that we have our act together, that wants to be admired and petted and looked up to. See, Satan's the original flaming narcissist. We just happen to be a lot like him. (laughs) And so we're not going to accept that diagnosis. And even in the professing church, in a small C Christian culture, in a culture where there's been a strong influence of Christian teaching for a long time, whether or not the people personally know Jesus, we start to get sucked into that My value is established by how I perform. And this is why we wear masks, and this is why we try to make ourselves look good for church, and this is why we do all these things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but if we really unpacked what's going on inside of us, at that heart level, a huge part of what's driving a lot of that behavior is the course of this age. And Paul's trying to get the Ephesians to just get over that, get above that operate from a different place because all of that is just passions of the flesh desires of the flesh and the mind it's so often like flesh bad mind good no it's all bad and it's all made in the image of god and needs to be restored but the problem is the whole foundation is is collapsed that's by nature Children of wrath. It's so broken that we're never gonna like rebuild it on our own, and we can't build on it. We need a new foundation. And once you define that accurately, and you understand that we're dead, and he's gonna mention dead again in a minute, um then as bitter a pill as that is to swallow, at that point when you've actually accepted the diagnosis, there's something you can delight in, and it's God's grace. So, think about it when you've just really, really been hurt by somebody, and maybe you have, maybe you've been molested, maybe been abused, and you're like, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. No, they don't. But think about that. <laughs> Embedded in that is some sense of, but I deserve forgiveness. And we don't. And none of us do. Which is actually what sets you free. <laughs> but it's very offensive in how we actually conduct our relationships, how you know, we're so transactional. We keep score. And then God comes in, and we delight in His grace, and says, see, here's one of those really ones. There's all this, right? And then verse 4, but there's also this, there's God. Thank God for God. (laughs) But God, not like us, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he mentions them again, I alluded to that, made us alive together in Christ. Now, much is made in some systematic theologies about how humans are dead and therefore must be altogether passive, that faith is imputed after you're regenerated. And you're waiting to see what I'm going to say about that. And you're already starting to click off your systematic theological grids to see whether you're going to listen to me or not. (laughs) So I don't want to talk about it systematically. I want to talk about it textually. That Paul is a human writer. The Bible is a human book. It's inspired. But if we are so dead to God the way some people interpret it, that we are unable to respond to his spirit, why does Paul say we are still able to respond to sin as believers, even though we are dead to sin in Romans 6. Same same human writer, same word. Yet we write huge systematic theological treatises about regeneration must precede belief. And of course, that just begs the question, why doesn't he just regenerate everybody? And And whatever your system... That's not textually coherent. You can't, because of your system, say, I'm going to interpret Paul saying dead here as unable to respond, and then hold, if you're going to be logically consistent, you must say, therefore, Christians never sin, because we should be unable to respond to sin. That's not logically coherent. We're never going to figure out the perfect system. It's amazing how we do this. We grab, same human writer, same word, (laughs) and interpret them differently based on our system. We do that with our politics. We just do that. And it says more about us than it says about the accuracy of what we believe. It would be much more honest and actually logically coherent to say, I don't understand. And when you say, but whatever, God's God. When you do that, you're like Paul in Romans 11. Well, who's ever going to figure it out? His past are beyond tracing out. But we can't violate the text. Is it revealed or do we figure it out? If you think we figure it out, you're not really defining your nature apart from God accurately. We should be coherent, not pick and choose our preferred meaning based on our preferred system. Don't do that politically, don't do that ethnically, don't do that generationally, don't do it biblically especially. When you start doing that, you're not getting above the prince of the power of the air. And then we get all tripped up over theological systems rather than just delighting in God's grace. He made us alive in Christ, He raised us up with Christ, He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And we're all about, you're dead. Like that. Well, is that really the focus of His teaching there? We were. but made us alive in Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. We don't see that now. But in verse 7, he says, we will see it in the coming ages. And now as the plural, ages. <laughs> We're all hung up in this age. And it's really, in the grand scheme of things, a small part of the puzzle. But you've got to believe. You've got to trust what God says. And whenever scripture uses that word of age, it's trying to get you to see what's the dominant spiritual influence, practically speaking. And this age is dominated by this evil prince. We gotta make sure we don't get sucked into his way of operating and thinking. Verse six is huge. Raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is huge. I talked about heavenly places and the three heavens, But it's real right now. You are already seated with Christ. You just don't see it yet. So there's no amount of work you're going to do that's going to make you more seated or less. What work could you do to ever get up to heaven and sit down at the right hand of the Father with Jesus? And what work could you ever do to take you away from there? It was never about that. But then he also says, when you look at chapter 1, and that place of being seated is not just by the skin of our teeth above principalities and powers. It's far above principalities and powers. Now, we're going to unpack that one more when we get to Ephesians chapter 3, especially verses 8 through 11. But in short, principalities and powers are, in this case, really both good and evil, but we're focused on the evil ones in Ephesians, it's Satan and these high-order spiritual beings that have infiltrated human society and basically try to keep different ethnic cultural groups in darkness. Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. So you have to be really, really careful not to deny our ethnic heritage, because that translates to heaven, In Revelation 7, you see people from every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, language. But when we get caught up in our preferred economic system, our preferred political system, our ethnic heritage, our cultural background, it's only in Christ that you can actually like redeem that and unify it. Legitimately unify it. And so if we go, that's all really, really important and we need to acknowledge that's part of who we are and that's our background and that's our story. But if you don't Put Christ first, then it's just Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, and Prince of America. There is no other way to get above them. It's Christ. And we have a really, really good way of, of like trying to segment Christ by our culture. I say it often from this pulpit, when are we going to get past the Reformation? Not because I'm not grateful for the Reformation, but until we own the fact that it's after the Reformation, the church fragmented 30,000 times, and how divided we are, and you see that's a huge beam in our own eye. There's like Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and 30,000 others. And look, there's reasons to divide. I'm not saying that, and I'm very grateful for Martin Luther. There's not 30,000 reasons to divide. We're not getting above this stuff but we can we can't we're not going to change the whole world but we can change here and you have no excuse none not to none stop making excuses we need to demonstrate more of our potential we need to show the world And we do that by grace, through faith, celebrating who we are, our being, and then acting accordingly, our doing. Our doing doesn't create our being, our being should generate our doing. God has made us alive, He's regenerated us, He's seated us in the heavenly realm. And that's this these verses. He's shown us His great kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Here we go again. It is the gift of God. And then people want to take their system and say, the gift is the faith. Except it's not. Not textually. You need that for your system. The word faith is feminine in the Greek. The word this is neutral, neuter. If Paul was trying to pull out faith and say that's directly the gift from God, he would have had this gift be feminine to refer back to faith. It's not textually what it's saying. It's just saying the whole thing's a gift from God. It's grace. It's not works. Now I'm getting in trouble. (laughs) It's just the text. I I can't figure it out either. This is the picture Paul is painting. You're not saved by works because you were created to do good works. So how does that fix the times where you didn't? In other words, like, well, you know, my Windows program is going to save itself because it only crashes half the time. <laughs> it was designed to run all the time. You got, well, it might just be Windows, but you've got some Malware. And you're going to need an antivirus download to clean it up. It's not going to fix itself. And you don't say, well, you know, my operating system runs correctly 55% of the time. It only crashes 45%. So I guess in the end, no, I'm just going to pull the plug. You need a new operating system. <laughs> And here's the thing, the more often your system crashes, the more likely you are to admit that you need a new system. So it's not the people who are high performers that more often come into the faith. It's not the rich. It's not the noble. It's not the movers and the shakers. It's not the big influencers. Because they feel like they're operating fine. By the way, I've heard Mark say this recently, I was like, he's right. They actually think they're better than you, that they're superior. And once you get that, you understand why they talk down to you. They've convinced themselves of that. But those who are more advanced in the disease, more ravaged by it, they know that they cannot cure themselves. Hence, they're more likely to trust the doctor's diagnosis. Take the medicine and get healed. <laughs> i can't do it those who think they are healthy reject it because the medicine tastes awful to that part of you that's trying to prove you're healthy it's like going to a doctor and he says you got cancer i'm like okay well you know i'll go home and i'll eat right and i'll work out more and i'll get really fit doctor's like that's all great go do that you're gonna die And I feel pretty good, you know, and I've been working out and I've been running. I've been eating right, been getting good sleep. I feel better than I ever had. He's like, that's great. You're still terminal. The guy at stage four is not like, I feel great. Same disease. 100% terminal. We want to exercise away the disease. But then we turn around and sometimes in our circles overcorrect and act like exercise is bad. That works is bad. No, we were created to do good works. And that's what Paul's talking about here is God healed you because from day one, humans are his magnum opus. They are his worksmanship, really where we get the idea, poem. He's the poet. You're his poem. Go be awesome and wonderful and do good works. Just don't claim that you authored your own You were created to do these things. He's the author. You're the poem. And when you realize that he just really wants to make you rhyme and be beautiful and come to a good end, then you're free to go do that and live what David said I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. There's no problem with shining. And doing the good works and just having people be like, wow, that's incredible. Just make sure that you define yourself accurately before Christ and that you're delighting in God's grace so that you can demonstrate more of your potential, which is His potential in you. You're not doing anybody any favors by not developing that. Go shine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and this time. I pray that you would help us to demonstrate our potential where we can, right here at Grace Bible Church, where you have planted us. I thank you for each member of this congregation. Help us to show more of the potential of what you created the church to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.